Good morning, Christ City. Uh, would you please stand with me as we read God's word? Isaiah 53, 3 through 6. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Would you please remain standing as we pray? God of mercy, you promise never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, speak your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises and with faithful and obedient lives through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, there's an interesting exchange that occurs here in the Bible, and it's told by both Luke and Matthew. So Jesus is traveling around, he's, he's in the countryside, he's teaching, he's giving parables, he's, he's telling stories, he's freeing people from demonic oppression, uh, healing multitudes from every sickness, from, from leprosy to blindness. He's even healed death itself. And sandwiched between all the miracles, all the stories, is, we find this little narrative. And messengers from John the Baptist, they come to Jesus and they ask him this question. They ask him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Matthew eleven three. John the Baptist, he's heard the reports. He's, he's witnessed Jesus' actions. He's heard him speak. In fact, John is the one who declares in John chapter 129, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yet despite this prophetic clarity, John the Baptist is confused. He, he sends these followers and asks this question, Are you the one or shall we look for another? This question and the longing expressed deep underneath, it gets to the idea of our text and our topics this morning. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Why does this question matter? Why did it matter to John the Baptist? And why does it matter to us two millennia later? In our Christology series, Jake has highlighted Jesus as pre-existent, son of God, Jesus existing outside of time and space, eternally loved by the Father. Last week, we saw him as Lord of all creation. Not anything that was made has been made. This week in our Christology series, we're going to focus the lens and we're going to look at the prophesied Jesus, the Jesus, the promised one who speaks and interacts in history. Now, in order to see the heart of this prophesied Jesus, we need to answer this morning John's question. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And to help us do that, we're going to look at three things. We're going to confront our longing. We're going to see Jesus' desire for us. And finally, we're going to have our longing turned into hope. So let's deal with the longing first. One of the fondest memories I have of as, as a dad is when the kids were small and, and after the supper was over, you'd push the plates back, you'd lift your feet up, you'd pull a book off the shelf, and we would read a story. We'd read maybe a chapter or two at night. And there was something deeply satisfying about reading fantastical tales of, of heroes, pirates, horses, mythical creatures, lost treasure. We would let our minds wander in these tales of hope and these tales of wonder and of coming of age. 
And as I read these books out loud to my children, I began to notice a theme, a common thread, a common longing, if you will. And they expressed this, this struggle, this age-old metaphor of good versus evil. In the pages of these fantastical fiction books, written for everyone to see, I noticed a window into humanity's longing, his deepest longing. And in this particular genre, there seemed to be a freedom to express our yearning, a longing to put right what was wrong, a need for justice, a hope that a hero would come and restore everything that was broken, liberty, justice, and that everyone, all of humanity, would live in peace and harmony and freedom. I realized in the narrative of wizards, dragons, golems, elves, dwarves, orcs, whatever, in, the, in these stories, rather, they mirrored our internal need, our internal languishing, our longing for a promised Messiah to put things right, someone who would take the marred and the broken and restore it. This deep internal longing is what John the Baptist betrays with his question. John asks, are you the prophesied one, the one who will come to put all things right? Are you the one who will liberate us from the tyranny of the Roman army? Are you the sovereign Lord, the king who will rule with justice? John asks, are you Jesus, this prophesied Messiah? See, this question reveals John's inner tension. John really asks what he wants to know is this, are you the one, are you the one I'm longing for? Or will I once again be disappointed? See, longing is defined, rather, as a strong, persistent desire or craving, especially for something unattainable or distant. John, in his question to Jesus, expresses our collective longing for things unattainable and distant, for these things to be put right. Now, whether you're a Christian, whether you're an atheist, whether you just don't know or you regard this whole thing as a fairy tale, you can't help but realize that recent events illustrate my point. The fact that many American cities look like war zones today at some level betrays a distinct and unattainable longing for justice, for, for the overthrow of tyranny and racial inequity. We as humans have a longing for justice that cold evolutionary chance can't explain. So this morning, wherever you land on these issues, unless we confront our longing, we will never see the heart of Jesus. Unless we confront our longing this morning, we will either give up our hope or we will rage against the machine. We will be complicit or we will take justice into our own hands. But either way, these outcomes, they will not give us the peace that we are truly looking for. Jesus wants to turn our unfulfilled longing into hope. But in order to deal with that, we actually need to look at point number two. We need to see the pre-existent Jesus, the prophesied Jesus in his heart for us. He desires us. A couple of weeks ago, Jake introduced us to uh, Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. So I would like us to go there again today. John 17, verses 20 through 24. I do not ask for these only, but, on, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. In this prayer of Jesus, we have the the veil pulled back, if I can use those words. And we can marvel of the love of God that he has for his son. But also in this prayer, we see, we observe Jesus' desire for us. His desire to see, to experience, for us to experience that very same love that he has with his father. The prophecies concerning a promised Messiah are highway markers of love throughout the entirety of history. Reminding us that one day, Jesus, we will see him in his full glory and we will live in peace. And because of his love and desire for us, we, have made everyth- we will have everything made new. We will be transformed by his desire for us. Jesus does not interact in history out of an obligation like some sort of cosmic deadbeat dad. The prophesied Jesus reveals his desire and his love for us and in a plan that will put right what has been broken from the beginning due to our sin and autonomy. Now, I could start in Genesis and I could highlight the beginning of sin and death and trace this restorative element all throughout the Old Testament. But as Jürgen Moltmann, a German philosopher and theologian, rightly stresses, this idea of a saving promised Messiah is not merely one Old Testament idea among others. The Old Testament as a whole is the book of continually growing expectation, pointing beyond itself and beyond every historical fulfillment. According to the prophetic interpretation, an explosive power builds up in Israel's history. And when the explosion comes, it is not revolutionary, it is messianic. The prophesied Jesus and his love for us is not sort of some sub-theme of Egyptian slavery, Noah's Ark, or some weird tower of Babel. No. No. The prophesied Jesus is the story of the Old Testament. Are you the one that is to come, or shall we look for another? John the Baptist was expecting a physical, political revolution, an overthrow of Roman tyranny, and thereby he was confused by Jesus as Messiah. In a very real sense, this whole sermon, this whole sermon series is a study of the heart of Jesus as the Messiah and his desire for us. Christology is all about the Messiah. In order to appreciate Moltmann's assertion here, let's look at the high the price of these highway markers, and that is Isaiah chapter 53 and our text this morning. Let me read it again. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This text was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. This text speaks of a suffering servant, a messenger from God, a Messiah that would come and one that would be rejected, despised. By every human, human standard, he would be insignificant one who would be mistreated by the very people he came to serve. 
Yet he, this servant, he is the one that bears our sorrow. He is the one that takes our grief upon himself. And when the very people that he came to serve reject him, this promised servant Messiah reveals his heart by willingly taking the iniquity of our iniquity upon himself. He brings us peace and, and he's broken and he's crushed and he's pierced for our transgressions as the text says. This highway marker of love states that it is by his wounds we are healed. It is by the wounds of the prophesied Messiah that we are healed. The curse of sin and death will be vanquished once and for all by the suffering servant and his wounds. It's not a, a revolutionary act or military aggression or a force, not some sort of, sort of Che Guevara character with a weird hat. No, it is Jesus. It is Jesus, and he desires us so much, he becomes the suffering servant, taking upon himself the iniquity of us all so that, as Jesus prays, that we can see his glory, that we can actually share in the love that existed before time itself. That should blow your mind. This suffering servant is Jesus, and he has come to take away the sins of the world so that we can be made new. It's because of this suffering servant's work and his love for us that seemingly crazy people will go to sporting events and hold up signs saying John 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This love is infectious. This highway marker of love in Isaiah 53, not only do we see Jesus' desire and love for the whole world, but we can actually see his love and his tender care and his mercy for us as people, as individuals, in everyday suffering and pain, because in every way he has experienced it. Dane Ortland rightly observes, in our pain, Jesus is pained. In our suffering, he feels the suffering as if, as if it's own, even though it isn't. Not that his invincible divinity is threatened, but in the sense that his heart is feelingly drawn into our distress. His human nature engaged our troubles comprehensively. His is a love that cannot be held back when he sees his people in pain. This is the very heart of the suffering servant. This is the heart of Jesus and his desire for us. So with this firmly in our minds, we can now deal with John the Baptist's question. Are you the one who is to come or shall I look for another? And we have the benefit of hindsight in this text. We can actually read and we can see clearly that Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, his, his weird, glorious life, we can actually see that and apply that to this text. But John did not have that luxury. So what was Jesus' response to him? Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 to 6 say this. This is Jesus speaking. Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. One could easily read Jesus' lists here of accomplishments that miss the prophetic, messianic significance of the things that he says. In order to appreciate just how profound what Jesus says here is to John, he says, you need to understand the background behind all of this. Otherwise, you miss the point. It's like going to watch a movie and not understanding all the foreshadowing elements, and then when you get to the big reveal at the end, you're like, oh, that didn't make sense. We need to understand a couple of things about the book of Isaiah for this to make sense. 
See, Isaiah is roughly broken up into three distinct portraits of this promised Messiah. The first is the coming king. You know, this is what we celebrated at Christmas, you know, unto us a child is born. So we celebrate this is the coming king. The second one is the suffering servant. This is what we looked at in Isaiah 53, the one, the sacrificial one who takes away the sin of the world. This is what we celebrate at Easter. The third one is the anointed conqueror and the promise to deal with all the consequences of this evil and injustice, the one who will put things right. This is where John had problems. We look at this list that Jesus gives John. We see we have the blind receive sight. We have the lame walk, the lepers cleanse, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Now let's look at the portrait in Isaiah 61 of the anointed conqueror. Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Jesus links his actions, his list of accomplishments, directly to the expectation and the promises of the anointed conqueror. He overlays his actions with the promises about the one who will proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the one who will eke out vengeance upon evil and the one that will put everything right. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus quotes this Isaiah 61 text and applies it directly to himself. He says, in me this is fulfilled. He's a little more subtle with John the Baptist here. And Jesus gets to the very heart of what John was longing for. And he shows them, shows him rather, his error. Jesus says to John, I am the promised king. I am the suffering servant. And yes, I am also this expected anointing conqueror. I am what you're longing for. Look, see, trust me. Jesus essentially says to John, put your hope in me. Put your hope in me. Step off the hamster wheel of longing that keeps you going around and around. Give me your longing and I will give you hope. I will give you what you're truly longing for. What has been promised will be fulfilled. Now, I'm going to be frank with you. I'm under no illusion this morning that some of you are sitting there and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, okay, Heath, but, but there's still racism. There's still little children being trafficked every single day We still have a drug crisis. We still have marginalized people being oppressed. We still have people living on the street. The world is getting worse, not better. The blind are still blind. The coronavirus has killed half a million people, and as far as I know, they're still dead. What good is a Messiah who died 2,000 years ago? How does he deal with all this racial inequity, all the pain, all the suffering, the child slavery, the oppression, the disease, the viral pestilence? How does Jesus, this prophesied guy, how does he deal with this here and now? You see, many of us are like John the Baptist. We look at Jesus and we ask, how could this be the guy? Seriously, how could this be the guy? Deep down, the problem is this. Deep down, we think that Jesus doesn't actually have the power to put right what is wrong. That's the root issue. We are not transformed by his love and his desire for us. And yet we languish in longing. We give up. We resign ourselves to the status quo. Or we become legalistic, controlling every scenario, 
We become angry and we become violent. This morning, we are confronted by John's question. Are you the one that is to come or shall I look for another? Even Jesus' disciples struggled with this idea. And so we just can't ignore or write off this tension. We have to deal with it. You have to appreciate how deep our longing goes. So let me set the stage for you. Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. He's buried. Three days later, he's resurrected. And he appears to his disciples. And the disciples, they connected that he was the one that would suffer, the Messiah, the one that would take away the sins. He, he connected that all of that, he was the king, but, but there was still injustice. There was still slavery. There was still Roman tyranny. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, you have this interesting question. Jesus' disciples gather and they ask Jesus this. Essentially, the same question as John. Acts 1, 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus' reply was, I'm sure it was like, oh, look, it's not the time for you to know these things or events. And then he disappears into the clouds. And so the guy, they're looking there, looking up. And in verse 10 and 11 of Acts chapter 1, we have this interesting exchange. And while they were still gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The penny drops. The resurrected Messiah, Jesus, is still a promised Messiah. This messianic expectation that Moltmann asserted still continues. The suffering servant, the one who was promised and has come, and through his death, his burial, and his resurrection, vanquishes death, restoring our relationship with God, this promised Jesus, prophesied Jesus, will come again as conquering king. He won't come in weakness, as in Isaiah 53. He comes as a conquering king with enough power to break the bonds of enslavement, just like Isaiah 61 says. Prophesied Jesus, Lord of all creation, will restore what has been marred and broken and exploited. Our hope for a future is grounded in the past, in the life, burial, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that. Our hope for the future is grounded in the past in the life and work of Jesus Christ. And that gives us hope to look forward. As was true with John and those who saw Jesus ascend, we are confronted by this same question. Are you the one that is to come? Or shall we look for another? You see, Jesus comes to us in our need, in our pain, in our suffering, in our brokenness, in our hurt. And he says, I've I've been there. I felt your pain. I know how you've suffered. I know that you long for justice and I will give it to you. I will come again and I will give you the justice and the freedom that you so long for because I love you and I gave myself for you. This is the call for us this morning. Will you surrender your longing? Will you walk away and look for another? Will you find peace that you're longing for or will you eke out vengeance by your own hand. As I close, I leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote to a struggling church in Rome. Paul says this, Romans 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, 
Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith to his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. People of Christ City, our hope in the prophesied Jesus is not, has not put us to shame, but rather through faith in him, we are made new. We have the very love of God poured into our hearts and, we've ch- and we're changed. So I ask you today, is the prophesied Jesus the one? Will you see his glory? Will you experience his love? Or will you look for another and walk away? Let's pray. God, we humbly come to you asking that you would turn our longing into hope, that that we would see your glory that you've had since the beginning of time. Lord, we ask we ask that, that we would see your love. We ask that you would take away our hurt and our pain. And we ask that you would allow us to trust you. Trust you to, to deal with the justice things that are so dear to our hearts. So Lord, we, we ask these things by your son's name. Amen.